0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the Ontario government has reached a deal with CUPE workers, so it's business as usual in Ontario schools. What can we expect from tonight's leaders' debate? And also, a second whistleblower has now come forward in the Trump impeachment inquiry. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The Ontario government has reached a deal with CUPE workers, and uh, yes, they are back to work today. Laura Walton is the president of CUPE's Ontario School Board Council of Unions. And uh, once again, she joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to bring us up to speed on this. Laura, thank you for joining us. Good to have you with us today.
1: Good morning. How are you today?
0: I'm well. And listen, congratulations are in order because I, we'll get into the details in a second. But I talked to a number of people uh, that w- would have been affected by this, of course, over the weekend. They were very concerned about what might happen, how long it's going to happen. But they're back to work, and i got to figure everybody's pretty happy today.
1: Yeah, uh, I think we're all pretty happy. I'm not sure if the kids feel the same way,
0: but I know we are. <laughs> well, yeah, the school day and, and days off are always intriguing. But but th- this had the potential to be a pretty ugly situation. What happened over the weekend to get things resolved?
1: Uh, I think over the weekend uh, we came in focused on what we were going to be doing. Uh, we were focused on where we were going, and, you know, we pushed back very early on on that sick leave uh, issue. Um, and then we were able to get focused on what has always been our key priority, which was securing services for our students in school.
0: Let me ask you about that, because I talked to the minister uh, and you, of course, last week, and, and uh, mm-hmm. Minister Lecce was pretty adamant that the sick leave thing was something that had to be resolved. Now, we don't know all the details about what happened over the weekend, but my understanding is that you guys did not budge on that.
1: We did not budge an inch.
0: So you, that's a that's a victory for you then. I, I, not just for you, but I'm, I'm talking about for your workers uh, as well.
1: Uh, I think it's for the workers, but I think it's also for the entire system. Um, you know, it just goes to show that the work that we do is valued, and there are reasons uh, why we do have a sick leave. But at the end of the day, we need to be looking at why folks are absent, not blaming them for their absenteeism, and I've been, you know, referring it to absenteeism is a symptom of the problem, not the problem itself, and now we're open to have some discussions as to what can we do to make working conditions better, to alleviate the pressures um, so that we get more supports in, so that we're not seeing violence in the workplace, all of those things will lead to better attendance.
0: Now I'm not so sure. As a matter of fact, I'm probably pretty sure that that probably wasn't a whole lot of the discussion around the table. But did you get any assurances at all, Laura, from the other side of the table there that we need to have those discussions? Because this is, as you mentioned, this is an ongoing problem, and and I I totally agree with you. I mean, I've talked to I've talked to educators, I've talked to parents, uh, and and the absenteeism or the sick leave thing is actually a symptom. It's not the problem itself, but it's got to be addressed.
1: It has to be addressed, and so you know we've. Uh, into the deal, we're moving forward and this will be the next, uh, you know, thing that we're taking on. We have public support, we want to make sure that we are having good quality services supporting our students and part of that is going to be having some of these hard conversations and looking at what we need to do and what the government needs to do and the council of trustees need to do in order to improve working conditions because working conditions are students' learning conditions.
0: Well, and obviously that's been impacted by some of the uh, government announcements, shall we say, uh, over the last couple of months. Uh, do you get any sense or any confidence at all, Laura, that uh, that the government's going to sit down and say, maybe we need to rethink this, Do we should talk?
1: I really hope they do. Uh, and, you know, I am open to speak to uh, Minister Lecce at his convenience. Uh, I'd like to have some face-to-face conversations with him. I've only met him once. Um, but I think it's time to put all of the other things aside. Negotiations are done. Let's work together. What do, we, he needs to talk to the frontline workers as to what we really need in order to make sure that our students are successful.
0: I, I understand you're, the number of different things on the table that you had to discuss over the weekend. And, and as you say, the you know the clock was ticking, so you had to get a number of things resolved on this. But, uh, but was there any discussion at all about the impact that some of the government policies are having? I mean, obviously, sick leave is one of them, but it's only one of a number of different things now that have been impacted by this, including staffing, mm-hmm. obviously.
1: Yeah, no, definitely. And, uh, you know, I'm hoping that we were able to lay a foundation uh, for our education colleagues are going to be coming in and I'm hoping that they can continue the fight. We will be there to support them 100%. We need to be taking a look at those class sizes, pushing back on that. They do not need to be increased. They need to be looked at and made sure that people are getting good quality, publicly funded, publicly delivered
0: education. Did they seem to get that? That you're the frontline people. You're the ones that are having the the the, the best knowledge about the, what these policies are. I mean, oftentimes, and I've seen this happen. Doesn't matter who's at the, you know in the corner office of Queens Park. They make a policy announcement based on what some consultant has told them. They're not there. Mm-hmm. They're not in the classroom. They're not there on the front lines.
1: Yeah, I think the proof is not going to be in what happened at the negotiations table, but what happens. Actions speak much louder than words, and so we need to be able to see actions from this government and from the Council of Trustees Association as we move on during the life of this collective agreement that shows their commitment to students and families.
0: All right, let me get into some of the uh, the, the, the fine print here. Uh, you have an agreement in principle right now. Clearly, that must be ratified. What's the process here?
1: Okay, so we'll be calling in our leaders, actually. My team is heading uh, into the office to be working on that tonight. Uh, today and tonight, we are going to be calling in our leaders to uh, endorse the package, and then we will start a province-wide ratification tour. Uh, we're hoping to have this done by the end of the month. So we've got a lot of work cut out for us and a lot of miles to get through, uh, but we're committed to getting it done and getting it underway and just alleviating that uh, other issues so that we know we're moving forward.
0: Are you confident that uh, that the membership are going to be uh, amenable to this, that they're going to give this a thumbs up?
1: I think the membership is going to be impressed. Uh, I mean, unfortunately, we weren't able to achieve as much in wages as I would have liked, You know, which is hard when you are the lowest wage earners in the education system. Um, but I'm hopeful that there are other folks coming in who are going to be able to carry the ball down the field for us in that manner, and, uh, and hopefully they can help us out in that way, in the same way we help them out with sick leave.
0: Uh, and and you mentioned that this is going to go on. It's going to take obviously a few days to to have some sort of a ratification vote on this. What what's the status yeah. right now? Because previously, of course, there was the concern about you know whether there was going to be a strike today. Uh, but yeah. there was work to rule before that. Is that off the table now? Is it business as usual yeah. now? As it's, far as you guys are concerned,
1: business, it's business as usual pending ratification.
0: Okay. Uh, great news uh, for uh, I think everybody involved, as you said, except for the students who were kind of hoping for a day off today. But uh, <laughs> this is this is the this is the lesser of two pretty big evils at the stage. Laura, let's stay in touch over the next couple of days. See how this rolls Sounds out. Thanks like, so much for this.
1: Thanks so much. Take Bye. care,
0: Laura Walton, of course, uh, president of CUPs Ontario School Board. Council of Unions. So how does this impact the boards themselves? Well, I want to bring Alex Johnstone into this. She is, of course, the chairman of the board for the Hamilton-Wentworth uh, District School Board, uh, joining us on the Bill Kelly Show. Alex, good morning. How are you today?
2: Good morning.
0: You're li- relieved, I guess. I asked how you were doing. Obviously, this is this is a much better outcome than we were, uh, I think, concerned about a couple of days ago.
2: HWDSC Board of Trustees are thrilled that our um, then at the provincial negotiating table, a deal was reached. This is fantastic news for all of our students.
0: And, and, you know, considering what could have been, and I know that, you know, the, the Catholic Board had already announced that had there been a strike today, they probably would have shut down schools. Uh, you were kind of in a wait-and-see attitude right now, but I mean, things could have got pretty messy today, so that's been avoided. There's got to be just, a, I guess, a little bit of frustration, though, Alex, because you're the ones that have to deal with whatever happens here between these negotiations, but you you don't really have a hand in this. You can't really do a whole lot about this, can you?
2: Negotiations are taking place provincially and it is difficult when negotiations are happening elsewhere. You don't have a direct say, um, over the circumstances that said, uh, we are so thrilled that a deal was reached. Um, it really shows that our, our labor laws work. Um, and that, uh, that everyone's back in our schools. We couldn't be more happy that our our caretaking and maintenance staff here at HWDSB are rejoining our staff teams in full. Our students need the full support of the entire school. Um, and our caretakers do so much valued work. They, they're cleaning up spills. They're dealing with chemicals. They're testing water before the, the school day starts. They're flushing our water systems. Um, they're making sure our schools are safe and clean so that our students have good places to learn.
0: Well, and I had a couple of conversations over the weekend with some educational assistants who would have been impacted by, may have been impacted by this and, and very passionate discussions about that because they do great work, of course, in the classroom itself. Uh, they're going to be happy. I know this morning that this is back to work, but just speaking with uh, with Laura Walton from QP uh, just a couple of minutes ago, and she was saying that uh, she feels as if the door has been opened with the ministry now to talk about the impact that some of these past policy decisions are having in the classroom. That's got to be good news for you, too.
2: It is. We have eight more collective agreements to negotiate still, and so there is a long road ahead of us. Um, but this is, this strikes a very positive tone, uh, not only with CUPE with, but with all of our bargaining groups to come.
0: Well, and therein lies the the good news, bad news scenario, I guess. I mean, the good news is, is this has been averted, and and it looks like the the agreements in place, and hopefully the the uh, the union membership are going to ratify this. But you got a lot of other people lined up right now saying, "Okay, we're next." Uh, this uh, this is a long road yet to go, isn't it?
2: It is a long road. I think that when we when collective agreements are negotiated, they're all of our collective agreements, and it's about reviewing what has worked, what hasn't worked, and setting the vision for the future. And um, uh, they're difficult conversations, but they're very important conversations because at the end of the day it is about our students, and we want to, all of us, ensure that we are giving our very best to our students.
0: And uh, as, as they begin those negotiations with some of the other unions that are going to be impacted by this, I think we're going to notice a, a similarity between a number of the concerns here. I and mean, They talked about the, the absentee issue and, and, and the sick leave issue and things of this nature. Uh, and, and the classroom environment right now. I mean, th- these are very common problems through uh, both teachers and education assistants and maintenance staff all through this. Uh, I'm hoping the government gets the message that maybe it's time to sit back and, and maybe think, rethink, I guess, some of the things that they've tried to implement over the last six or eight months.
2: Well, and last night was a, was a positive sign. So fingers crossed that that continues to, to be the direction, that, uh, that fair deals continue to be worked out and that the focus remains on our kids. They need to be front and center through all of this.
0: Well, and that's that should be. I know it is for the board and, and certainly for the teachers. It's the job, one, is, is the well-being of the students themselves, uh, not necessarily the bottom line, which seems to be the government's uh, infatuation at this stage. Uh, there's got to be some middle ground there here, Alex, because, I mean, you know, no matter what the government said, as you and I have talked about over the last number of months, uh, you at the board are the ones that have to kind of deal with the mess that these guys create. And uh, it can be problematic sometimes if you don't have government cooperation.
2: It, it can certainly be challenging. And that's where your local trustees want to be le- hearing from, from our staff, from our, our students, and from our parents directly at, at, during these times so that we can continue to advocate and champion uh, those voices to the provincial level.
0: Well, and for that standpoint, from that standpoint, rather, it's I think it's heartening and probably beneficial that, in in a roundabout way, I mean, the boards and these unions seem to be speaking with one voice, at least sharing the same concerns. Anyway, about the impact of classroom sizes, about the impact of of funding for things like education assistance, etc., like that, about violence in the classroom. I mean, these are issues that both you, the teachers, and the other unions are all very concerned about right now. So the government's got to be getting that message.
2: And I think that, again, I'm going to point out that last night, a deal was reached successfully. And that's where we are looking for collaboration with all three parties that sit at the provincial table. Locally, we are thrilled to have um, our our caretakers and maintenance staff back in our buildings um, it it did create a lot of work this past week in order to put together a contingency plan um, to pull people from their regular jobs and to to undergo training. Um, it's uh, uh, it was it was an enormous amount of work. However, at the end of the day, it just goes to show that when you prepare for all scenarios and you're and you're ready to go. Um, Thankfully, we did, we did not need to use those those contingency plans.
0: Well, you can exhale this morning because uh, it looks like things are working out. But uh, as we mentioned, uh, still a lot of challenges uh, yet with the board and with the provincial government on this too. But uh, at least for uh, for a few hours today, and, and hopefully in the in the long term too, this is going to be business as usual. Alex, thanks so much as always for the time today. We'll uh, stay in touch as this rolls out over the next couple of weeks.
2: Thank you, Bill.
0: Take care. Alex Johnstone, of course, the chairman of the board for the Hamilton Board of Education, and uh, and everybody, both the Catholic board and, of course, the public board, uh, relieved, obviously, that there has been an agreement in principle on this. Now, I do want to caution you, though, as Laura Walton from QP told us, that uh, it's not yet been ratified, although she seems pretty confident that uh, once the membership gets all the details on this, that they're going to be uh, happy on this. I mean, it's as I say, there were some financial things there that I guess the union was looking for uh, that they didn't get in this particular contract, but uh, I'm not so sure that's going to be a major stumbling block. But uh, we'll certainly stay in touch as uh, they get more information on this, and we do for that matter too, because we've only got the bare bones of what uh, was agreed upon over the weekend. But uh, everybody back to work for the, the Boards of Education so far.
3: You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900
4: CHML.
0: On this side of the border, of course, on, on the political landscape, we've got an election two weeks from today. Uh, we'll be deciding which government, of course, we're going to have, conservative or liberal. I know there are others running, but it's the uh, the latest polling indicates this is really a two-horse race. And uh, the other race, uh, such as it is, is, is really for the, uh, the bronze medal here, the third-place finisher uh, between the NDP and the Green Party. And, and maybe the Bloc, which is interesting, because uh, if they do rise, as some people are suggesting in Quebec, and uh, the NDP and uh, the Green Party don't do as well as some people are thinking they might do, uh, we could once again have a scenario where the Bloc Québécois is the official opposition in Ottawa. That's uh, an interesting scenario. Uh, to talk about what's going to be happening about the election, but more importantly about tonight, which is going to be the English-language debate Pleased to welcome Henry Jasek, professor of political science at McMaster University, to the Bill Kelly Show here on 900 CHML. Uh, morning, Henry. How are you doing today? Just great, Bill. Good. Lots going on in politics. Boy, this is it's never dull. Uh, this has yep. been a rather interesting campaign in so many ways. And I, Henry, I don't think we can overstate just how important tonight might be. I mean, this is, this is the national stage and maybe the only time that many Canadians are going to be able to hear all of these leaders at one time.
3: That's right. And uh, people will be not only making up their minds tonight, uh, how they feel about uh, the debate, but they will also be hearing different people uh, in the media and friends and what have you talk about it through the week. And we should keep in mind that beginning on Friday, people will begin voting. So this is we're we're at the point where we're, where this is really going to matter because people are going to start voting in the advance poll on Friday night, and so the uh, Monday is not very far away from friday
0: <laughs> well listen, I, I should remind people too because we got our voting cards uh, in the mail on friday uh and if you are inclined to to go to the advanced polls, uh check the back of the card because where the advanced poll is is not necessarily where the poll is on voting day i I can, I can tell you right now ours is nowhere near. Uh, where we would right. vote if we waited for election day. So, uh, uh, and more and more people are taking advantage of advanced polling. There, there wasn't was not too long ago, Henry, that you had to actually have a, uh, a, an explanation or a rationale to actually vote a, a, in advanced polls. Now I think an awful lot of people are taking advantage of that.
3: That's right. They, don't, they, they assume that the polls will be crowded on, on the election day, and, they just, and they're people who will take their, you know, their duties seriously, and they say, well, I don't want to wait in line a long time, so I'm just going to go early and, uh, and, and, and vote and not put up with the uh, long lines on, on election day.
0: It's uh, interesting because obviously we don't get much of an indication as to who's going to vote for what, but uh, it, we do, uh, of course, get an indication as to who actually voted and and the numbers in the advance right, polling. Right. Uh, and, and that's going to be an interesting little sidebar story is to see how many people are actually that motivated to say, yeah, I really want to get up there and mark that ballot.
3: Yeah, I think we're seeing more and more people wanting to do that. Listen, and the parties encourage their, their supporters to get out early in case something happens on Election Day that they can't make it. So now we're having the parties trying to get their core supporters out uh, in the advanced polling, and that's driving up the numbers as well. So uh, for all those reasons, and, and maybe hopefully it's also increasing turnout. Maybe uh, if people think about, well, I've got five different days I can vote uh, for advanced poll on the regular day hopefully we can get the the turnout up a bit higher we did the last time and you know and i always think that you know higher turnout no matter the outcome no matter who people are voting for the higher the turnout uh, the more engaged the population is in the uh, election and the better our democracy is
0: but henry i'm hearing just the contrary the, 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 the a lot of expectation right now is that there's going to be a lower voter turnout in this election what what's your read on that
3: uh, yeah, I think that's a, a problem. That, it, it, I think it's a problem for one particular party. It's the, it's the liberals. Uh, and the liberals traditionally, we know, really have to have an exciting end of the campaign, because uh, the, the liberals have traditionally had a lot of people uh, who, in fact, are not highly, as highly interested as the conservatives or the new Democrats and so uh and in add in this election, I think the greens are pretty interested too uh probably the Bloc, as well as in quebec so uh the the liberals and trudeau he's really gotta you know he's gotta turn on the jets and <laughs> he's really gotta get people really interested in the campaign and really convince them it's worth their while to come out uh He was able to do that last time, and the big the the big burden is on him now. In the last uh, last uh, couple of weeks here, to to really get pe- his people who might vote liberal to get them really interested and in, in get them out to vote, and it's especially young people.
0: Well, and that's going to be the the I guess the real test for the party at this stage. And and I, if, if if that's the ultimate goal, not just for for Trudeau but also for the other party leaders at this stage, mm-hmm. uh, it's got to be a little disconcerting when we see a number of polls right now that indicate that the majority of Canadians aren't really enamored of any of the leaders at this stage
3: yeah there's nobody who is sweeping uh uh you know through the through you know and and affecting sweeping and and really having a big uh, a big uh, influence uh, justin of course uh, justin trudeau is the most popular i've just looked at the latest polls mm-hmm. he's up 8% over over sheer but there's a lot of people who voted liberal last time Uh, and they're low intensity, and they say, well, he didn't live up to all the expectations I expected. And quite frankly, this often happens when you have a leader who comes in on a big wave at one point. It's hard to maintain that for the second election. Um, Andrew shear he's the first first time he's running, and uh, I think most people think that he is not the most interesting speaker and the most exciting speaker. I mean, his big problem is uh, he tends to uh, lean on his speaking notes no matter what the question is, and while you know, they have you know, while his party has a pretty good fix on what people are interested in. It, you know, it sounds like he's just too scripted, and I think that is that is that has hurt him. Uh, Jagmeet Singh, not, not many people know about him, but what's been happening, we noticed the last week or so, is that people really like him when they get pay attention to him in general, because they think, uh, first of all, he makes eye contact, and he actually sounds like he's answering questions that people actually ask. He doesn't sound scripted. He sounds intelligent, and he gives intelligent answers to what people... Have to say to him, and he and he's quick to give it. So he shows a quickness of mind. And but the problem is, most people don't know him, and it's first time around. He still, you know, he he still has a long way to go to, you know, to 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 get up where the NDP was the last time. But certainly, he's he's doing very well, and I think most commentators would say that yeah, you know, he is he is having a good impact on the population. But this is you know this is probably not going to be his finest hour. His finest hour probably will be the next election or the election after that. Uh so he, he he's gonna benefit from the debate. Um the block leader, uh Blanchett, I mean he I don't in this election, election I'm not sure in this debate I'm not exactly sure what he's going to say Uh, I mean, he's tried to portray himself to the people, to the, to the Francophone population, Quebec, that he's also interested in protecting the Francophone population outside of Quebec. And that's interesting. Um, uh, I think inside the Francophone community, particularly in Ontario, uh, is that, of course, they have been highly aggrieved by the the current Premier of Ontario, a Mm -hmm. conservative, and he—they feel they he has badly treated them so much so that his lead, his lead Francophone MPP, walk, you know, left the caucus on the matter of principle and uh... and uh... so and and in fact over the over commitment uh... that the previous government made about trying to uh... setting up a uh... A, a, uh french university in in toronto which was important to the committee to the uh... community Um and interesting justin Trudeau a while ago said he's gonna put money into that to try to make that happen so that that was a good move on his part we generally on on the english side wouldn't pay attention to all these nuances going on in the french community but i think it is interesting there is a battle uh for certainly for the uh for the hearts and minds of the uh francophone community in ontario and i think justin has played a, a good long game on that i don't know if Blanchette could you know is going to ta- is going to affect that in any way elizabeth may uh you know doing very well she's well known the greens are really up from from where they were the last time they're still in single single digits sometimes getting close to ten right now but uh... so they you know so they their vote is going to go up but are we, are we actually going to see uh, very many new seats if any for for the greens it's saying you know they could go up you know six seven points and they still might not get very many and then of course we have the people's party uh... Maxime bernier who you know is, pro- is going to take some votes away from the conservative, but I don't. I, I think it even looks like he's not even going to win his own seat. But, anyways, this is his chance to appeal to the English language audience, particularly the audience out in Western Canada, which is likely <clears throat> to be very receptive to his message.
0: And that's that's going to be one of the interesting, I, I guess, subplots to this whole thing. Uh, it right. is, is voting day itself, as, as to just what Bernier is going to do. And I don't think anybody has any, any, you know, even idea that the Bernier is actually going to, you know, they're, they're not going to be a force in the next parliament. And you're right, I've heard the same stories that he may not even win his own seat again. Right, but, right. but how many votes are they going to take away? I mean, people tend to forget That's that right. this guy came within like a hundredth of a percentage point of being the conservative party leader. And so there's a lot of support for him, especially out in the western provinces.
3: Yeah, I think if we uh, if if Bernier was not in there, I think you could make a strong case that throughout the campaign, the Conservatives would have been ahead of, uh, ahead of the Liberals uh, in the public opinion polls all the way through uh, the uh, through through the election period. And that ha- that hasn't been true. They've been bouncing around. The Liberals are a bit ahead right now, not by much, but they are. But if it wasn't for Bernier, I would suspect that probably the Conservatives would have been would have been ahead. The whole through the whole election and whether that would have affected the dynamic because of that uh... is unclear but certainly if i was you know the conservatives i wouldn't be happy that there's a people's party out there
0: what about the dynamic tonight, Henry? I mean, there's a lot of people out there. I, I, as you mentioned, I, I'm sure that some of these leaders are, are thinking, this is my one shot, I've got to make an impact. I, right. want, to be, I want to be that person that's going to be quoted. My soundbite's the one that I want to dominate the news cycle over the next couple of days. But with so many people on the stage, the chances of actually getting something in there and, and something of substance is going to be pretty difficult.
3: It, it is going to be very difficult. They probably need, each one of them has to think of what's the one message I want to put out there with the with the appropriate quote that people will remember. I'm sure they've all crafted it and trying to figure out how am I going to work it in. Justin Trudeau wants of course is going I think is going to want to you know try to connect on that good feeling he had the last time around and re you know once once again have the sunshine uh, shine on the country and uh, with his sunny ways and whether he can get that back in there uh, get people to feel that way again. Uh, that that I assume that's what he's going to do. Uh, Shear has been negative, primarily negative against the Liberals. I don't think that's worked out very well for him, actually. Uh, right, you know, he he personally is running eight points behind Trudeau. Is, when you ask people, who do you want to be prime minister? And that is actually fairly low compared to where the uh, where he's been through the course of the polling through the through the election. Uh, His party is doing better than him, so he has not been. I, I think right now we'd say he has not been an asset to his party, but maybe if he can get a good quip in there. But I don't know. He doesn't show himself to be spontaneous and able to go with the flow at the minute. And you know, getting a clip in there is when you when you're a major opponent. Leaves the door open and you rush right through and with, with with the with the clip that you've prepared and I don't know if Schweer you know sh, um uh whether schwerer has has the ability to uh you know to to seize that moment uh so I'll be looking for that uh whether you know the the n d p so far has been a straight ahead party, and jagmeet has been straight ahead and as i said has done very well. I think people like the way he he deals with questions and he deals with issues. Uh, he's not so much a person who, you know, wants to come out and sort of got you, you know, have a got you moment. He wants to, you know, get people to feel like, you know, boom, he's dealing with the problems, he's listening, and he's a solid guy that you can trust and feel good about. Um, then about the other two, I, the, the the other three, I don't know what, the, what, what they have in mind to uh, try to, you know, win over the voters, but... Uh, that may not be as important, of course, as the previous three.
0: It's interesting to see the way the NDP has has, has started to roll out here. I mean, obviously their their mm. presence in the in the Maritimes is almost non-existent. I mean, they had trouble right, even there, getting yeah. candidates. Uh, right. I'm hearing rumors that they might get decimated, maybe lose all of their seats in Quebec. Uh, still right. some strength in Ontario, but B.C. really seems to be the focal point for their strength now.
3: Yeah, they're, they're concerned about that. Now, Ontario is going to be interesting, because even if... They are down compared to their last election, and they are right now. E- and even if they're down more than the Liberals are, they're going to take Liberal seats away because what's going to happen? There is, uh, there are, there are concentrated seats. Where there are the main uh, the bay, a main competition in the last election was between the Liberals and the NDP, and the Liberals were able to to eke out those victories in in Ontario, even though um, to, in a number of those seats. And if um, if the Liberals are down and they can't get their vote out, and the NDP can pretty much get out their vote uh, with a good organization at writing. They may, there may actually t- uh, take more seats, and I think uh, a lot of the, uh, a lot of the uh, people pollsters and ag- and people who aggregate these polls. We have different people who massage them, like myself, and they look at them, and they they have been predicting all along that the NDP is going to have more seats this time around uh, with less votes in in Ontario because of the fact that uh, some of the Liberal victories from the last time are so thin, and with the li- you know with the Liberals maybe being down you know, five points or so, if compared to the last time, that's going to allow the NDP to take a number of these seats, primarily in the city of Toronto, and but maybe some other places. And of course, locally, uh, the NDP is really focusing on Hamilton East Stony Creek.
0: Absolutely. Henry Jasek. as always, Henry, we'll be watching with great interest tonight and uh, looking forward to get your assessment on it in the uh, days ahead. Thanks for this today. Okay, very good, Bill. Henry Jasek uh, from McMaster University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, a second whistleblower apparently has come forward. In the case of the Trump impeachment inquiry, we heard about this over the weekend. Uh, We are told by the lawyer for this uh, individual that uh, the latest whistleblower has firsthand information about some of the goings-on in the uh, Trump administration vis-a-vis Ukraine and other matters. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Jared Yates Sexton, a political commentator and American author of The People Are Going to Rise Like the Waters Upon the Shore, story of an American rage. Uh, Jared is also, of course, a uh, professor, associate professor in the Department of Writing and Linguistics at Georgia Southern University, and he joins us on The Bill Kelly Show. Jared, thank you so much for the time. I'm glad you could join us today.
4: Thanks for having
0: me, Bill. Let's, let's talk a little bit about I want to get to the second whistleblower in a second, but I wanted to get your assessment on on the Trump administration's handling, and obviously strategy here, uh, about discounting and discrediting anybody that comes forward. They did a, a, a what some people consider a pretty incredible job of, of tearing apart Comey, apart, even Mueller, of course, in, in previous incarnations. Uh, now there's somebody new on the front right now, and they seem to be using the same strategy. Is it working?
4: Well, I I think it's a really generous thing to call this a strategy. Um, The administration (laughs) flails about um, pretty uh, hectically calling anybody that criticizes it um, either partisan or saying that they lie. Um, It it has been pretty haphazard what they've been doing. Uh, For instance, they have no idea who the whistleblower is, but have already said that this person is a partisan hack. and and they've done this, and they've done that. Um, Basically, Trump's entire playbook from the entire moment that he's arrived on the scene is to just counterpunch against anybody who might criticize him. Uh, The problem is in the past, particularly with Comey and then Mueller, uh, these things were very intricate, sort of hard to understand. Um, It wasn't necessarily the story that the media was looking for. This particular scandal is very, very easily understandable. Um, He's been caught dead to rights. We have transcripts. We have witnesses. um, We have people left and right saying that they've seen him do this multiple times. And, of course, he's admitted to doing it on camera. So the strategy here um, seems to be, again, flailing around trying to find some sort of defense that will stick or work. But it doesn't seem like it's really holding this time.
0: Yet, the fact that, and, and again, I guess officially it's not a transcript, it's, it's, it's a version of, of that conversation, we're told, uh, and probably an edited one of that since it was a much longer conversation than just the number of pages that we've seen. But the, I guess the thing that we find frustrating, Jared, is we watch this is yes, he's admitted to it, but when somebody questions him on it, he says, no, I didn't do it, or I didn't do anything wrong, even though it's right there, and it, it was the White House that released this. Yet there seems to be a segment of the population that simply says, well, if he said he didn't do it, then he didn't do it. Oh, I think we lost Jared there. Be a bad, a, a big connection. All right, well, I tell you what, let's, uh, let's see if we can hook that up again uh, as we continue our discussions. Uh, if you're just joining us, uh, we're talking with uh, Jared Yates Sexton, uh, uh, author and a political uh, commentator, of course, down in the United States, uh, about the uh, revelation uh, over the weekend that there is now indeed a second whistleblower uh, who uh, apparently came forward some time ago. This is not relative. This is not new, uh, and uh, is suggesting that uh, that uh, they have firsthand information. I think we've reestablished contact with Jared. Are you there again, Jared? Hi, Bill. Hi. Sorry about that. Sorry about that. Well, this, these things happen. Uh, I, my my point was is that there seems to be a certain segment of the population uh, that no matter what Trump says, even though there's there's as you mentioned, solid evidence about what did ha- occur during that phone call with uh, the president of Ukraine with Zelensky, that he says he didn't do anything wrong. That he says he did not ask for the the now famous quid pro quo. And, and people seem to buy whatever Trump says, hook, line, and sinker. at least a certain portion of that. Is, the, is that that Trump base that is, is going to be unmoved no matter what else is going on and no matter what else other people say?
4: Unfortunately, I think that probably is true. What we're dealing with right now and I think uh it's something that a lot of people are talking about behind the scenes is we have something of an existential crisis particularly in America where there's a group of people who are trapped in an alternate reality that's a feedback loop between the president and right-wing media and online conspiracy theorists and basically they are living in a different world than the rest of us. And in this world, this president is completely justified to break any law, any norm because he's uh, trying to root out some sort of bizarre, nonsensical conspiracy theory that everyone realizes is is completely bizarre and nonsensical. So there is going to be a portion of the population that probably is not going to accept any sort of criticism of him. But it is becoming clear that people in the middle, particularly independents and people who lean center-right, are beginning to realize that there has been a crime committed here.
0: Uh, which may actually be underscored by the the, the presence of this uh, this second whistleblower uh, who we're told now has firsthand information and I, I found it interesting uh, when the, uh, the the lawyer who's involved in this tweeted about this this morning the fact that they would use that 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 phrase a uh, first-hand information which seems to counteract uh, what Trump and a number of his uh, advocates are suggesting here that well whoever this first whistleblower was uh, was somebody who has second information so it's all hearsay and really nonsensical at this stage this this seems to be counterpoint to what they've been saying over the last couple of weeks.
4: That's right. This is definitely an important piece in this entire investigation. Um, The second whistleblower, who particularly it sounds like was either on the call or in the room during the call or in some sort of intelligence apparatus, that sort of seals the deal. It tells us that that... uh, transcript, whatever we want to call it, and what we've heard and and what the president has admitted on camera is what happened. What's going to matter now, of course, is how the public accepts this, whether or not we continue to see the numbers increase of people who think he should be impeached or removed from office, or whether or not that stagnates. But we've definitely seen a trend in the the former direction.
0: Let me talk about personnel here, if we could, because the speculation, of course, is rampant about who these whistleblowers might be. Uh, we do know in the past, uh, based on books by people like Woodward and others, that uh, that there are people that are willing to talk about this under the guise of anonymity, uh, but nobody seems to want to come forward and, and actually say, this is the way I feel and this is what actually went on. There have been a couple that have since left the White House, but it seems as if there is still this, this cloak of silence on there. Is is, is that about to change?
4: You know, I I think a lot of people have uh, described this as a dam bursting. And I think that's true, because uh, in my conversations, particularly with Republicans in D.C. and their staffs and their aides, um, everybody, when the cameras are off, admits that this is problematic and that the president has uh, probably committed impeachable crimes. But there has been a real fear of reprisals, whether or not it's the president uh, turning a white-hot spotlight on them, or them uh, fearing for their own safety or the safety of their families or political repercussions. But the thing is, with narratives like this, we we definitely see a landslide start to take place where all of a sudden momentum shifts and builds. And again, this dam might burst where we might see a lot of people who have had a lot of concerns for the past three years come forward, say what they've heard, say what what they've seen, and, and that whole thing could build momentum all of its own.
0: And, and I guess the inevitable contrasts and, and comparisons with the Watergate situation uh, that many of us are, are obviously lived through ourselves and saw that. And, and the pivotal point, the turning point of that, uh, which seemed to turn even some of the staunchest Nixon supporters in, in the Republican Party at that time uh, against the president at that stage. Ob- the, 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 the You know, the, the, the presence of the phone calls and eventually actually hearing some of the tapes of those phone calls. Uh, led even some of the Republicans on that committee, Laurel Weicker and, and Howard Baker and others, to simply say, oh, enough's enough, Mr. President. Are, are we ever going to see that sort of a tipping point in in this scenario here?
4: That is the, the big question here. Um, unfortunately, during the time of Nixon, uh, or fortunately, I should say, there was no Fox News propaganda apparatus or right-wing blogosphere that would hold those people accountable. It was simply one-on-one politics and do, standing up for principles. In this case, there is an entire group of Republicans, a large chunk of them, that are beholden to these media apparatuses. And so they probably will not stand up and do that. But there's still a hope that there are principled members in um, in Congress that will tell the president that it's time to go, or people in his administration. But whether or not Donald Trump will listen to those people is, is pretty doubtful.
0: Well, as I heard one commentator say a couple of weeks ago, the difference between Nixon and Trump is that uh, Nixon had shame. I mean, he, he had a conscience. Uh, I'm not so sure that the guy in the White House does.
4: Yeah, I I, I don't think that he does either. It's not within his character. And going back to what we were talking about earlier, there is a firm belief with this president that he, he believes what he's been told and what he's seen. He does believe in these conspiracy theories. There's a possibility he doesn't even believe that he committed a crime, but he's actually trying to root out a deep state or a Ukrainian conspiracy or whatever he wants to stand by at this moment. So there is a possibility that this person, who's entrenched in his own alternate reality, probably does not feel shame for this and probably does not feel a need to remove himself from office. So I, I, I think we're looking at a really, really difficult situation that's starting to emerge, and I think it's anybody's guess
0: what ends up happening. Jared, what about the way the Democrats are handling this whole thing? Um, you know, there's been some concern about about uh, Adam Schiff and, and some of the other things that have been said and, and the way, the context in which they produce this. Uh, I, I don't necessarily think it's to the point where they think this is a slam dump because the information here is overwhelming. Uh, there is a process to be followed right now, and even a misstep by, by the Democrats at this stage could throw this whole thing off.
4: Well, I think Democrats have definitely been held back by trying to over-strategize and, and you know, play a game of chess and, and, and work with game theory and what will help the party and when they should do it and what they should do. I think that they should simply do this investigation the way it needs to be done. Don't worry about when it uh, interacts with the elections of 2020 or primaries or any of those things. I think that they have already seen that when they stepped up to bring the impeachment inquiry, that that, by doing the right thing, things started to fall into place. We saw the media here start to take things more seriously. We saw the entire uh, story around this and the way people talk about it start to change. So I think Democrats need to worry less about strategizing and more about just doing the right thing. And I think things will fall into place as that happens.
0: I, because they're, I mean, hearing all the warnings, I mean, if you, you listen to some of the commentators that, you know, don't let it run into the primary season, get it done before Christmas, et cetera, like that. I, I, I don't necessarily think there's a timeline here, is there?
4: No, I I think that there's a lot of talk that there should be. Um, And going back again to the idea of these playing games, I think there's a lot of think tanks and strategy houses and analysts who tell them that they have to do it by a certain date and they have to limit it by this. I think that we've seen time and time and time again that the Democratic Party fails when they try and over-strategize. It's very hard for them to, to keep a plan in order. It's very hard for them to stick to timelines. I say uh, talk to as many people as you need to, uncover as many rocks as you have to, and see where this thing takes you. And again, I think the more that you do the right thing and the more that you follow your moral compass, I think that it turns out well in the end. And I think the Democrats need to worry less about timelines and more about doing the job that they need to do.
0: Jared, can you give us some insight about process here for just a second? Because uh, what we saw certainly with the Mueller investigation and and, and uh, the way that it was handled both in the Senate and, of course, during the congressional hearings is, is the Trump administration simply did not uh, play ball with these guys. I mean, some witnesses just never bothered to show up, and, and some of those are before the courts now, and we'll see what happens with those eventually. A lot of information that was requested was never actually presented at this stage. Uh, in this process now, once they begin an impeachment inquiry, how much power does that committee actually have to, to obtain the documents or the people that, that they need for, for this to proceed?
4: So this is the really terrifying thing, and I think this is what's keeping a lot of process people awake at night. Um,
0: basically, the the administration
4: can stonewall completely and and basically tie this up in a lot of legal ways and, and put it into the Supreme Court. We could end up with a constitutional crisis. And then, of course, if we want to talk about strategy and games, We can look at the idea of whether or not we'll see uh basically a republican supreme court hold and let the trump administration stonewall completely um the question here and this is what i've been hearing from a lot of people is whether or not john roberts on the supreme court will be some sort of conscience or will uh uh, help to restore order in some way, but there's not a lot of confidence in that. And, and basically there's a lot of hope, I think, around Democratic circles that they'll be able to eat around the edges a little bit without necessarily getting all the cooperation and present a case that is compelling and uh, speaks to the American people.
0: I, I know that hope springs eternal, and and I know that some of the Democrats that are hoping that uh, that they're going to get some favorable hearing, if in fact it does go to the court, are, are looking at Roberts, obviously the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court there, and and they they've hearkened back to the Affordable Care Act, the Obama Care Act, which actually Roberts said was was okay, was thumbs up, uh, which surprised an awful lot of people in that decision. Uh, can you can you embrace that and say, well, he's going to be fair minded about this, uh, or is a Republican a Republican? Is a Republican?
4: I think it surprised a lot of people what Roberts has done on the court. So there is a hope that there will be some sort of order or some kind of, uh, you know, decent hearing in this and, and, and fair-mindedness. I know that one of the biggest fears, of course, is what might happen with Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And at any moment, the way American politics is working, something crazy could happen and something completely unexpected. So I think there are a lot of people who are buckling up for a very, very bumpy ride in this situation. But I think there is a feeling, finally, that something has broke. And that there is a changing narrative and a changing momentum to what's happening. So I think a lot of people who are very pessimistic about the possibility of impeachment and Trump being removed from office or being held responsible for once um, are starting to feel like there is a possibility of that happening at this point.
0: Is there a star witness? Is there somebody who could come forward uh, and identify themselves as somebody with this kind of knowledge uh, that could break this open? Uh, A lot of John Dean, I guess. So uh, again, to go back to that Watergate analogy.
4: Well, one of the reasons for a lot of optimism against Donald Trump is that he doesn't keep a lot of allies. I mean, pretty much anybody who's ever entered into his orbit, he's used them and juiced them for any opportunity that he can find, and then just sort of thrown them to the side. Um, A lot of people think there are uh, a lot of members of this administration that he has used and abused, and there's a lot of unlikely names that are coming up, like John Bolton, Mm -hmm. who nobody ever thought would possibly end up being some sort of a witness for Democrats. But the idea that Bolton, who has been a jingoistic american centric person could possibly have something to offer to say that this president has acted outside the interests of the united states so there's no telling who he's run across and who he has crossed in one way or another and we're really looking at the possibility of a lot of unlikely witnesses and a lot of unlikely people coming forward
0: well bolton's got a, an axe to grind with the president anyway i mean obviously he's recently released and i don't think anybody believes for a second he resigned uh and a lot of it had to do with Syrian policy and the Iraq policy and, and Iran policy uh and and the announcement over the weekend of course that the president's now going to start withdrawing troops from the the Turkish uh, Syrian border I, i'm sure is going to bother bolton and as it has a lot of other republicans like that and it, i guess you have to wonder just how much you know where when it is enough enough that they're actually going to say okay we're going to push back now
4: well something really amazing happened this morning actually i was drinking my coffee and just tuning into fox news and There was a moment on Fox News which has functioned again as an administrative propaganda mouthpiece. And we saw Lindsey Graham, who has stood by every decision the president has made, and Brian Kilmeade, uh, an anchor on Fox News, both call um, Trump's decision on the the Kurds and Turkey and Syria called it a disaster and were completely flummoxed by the idea that he would do anything like this. Um, and, And this basically shatters a lot of the orthodox idea that anything that Trump does gets supported. There are things that he does that are so inexplicable and so outrageous that it actually will alienate people, at least for a few moments. So there's people all across the board here of all types of different ideologies and different stripes who have seen what Trump has done and certainly have shown concern for it. And I think every day gives a new opportunity for him to alienate these people and push them toward a different direction. So again, there's every possibility that something really, really bizarre that can't be described based on left and right, Democrat and Republican, could happen here that could lead to him being removed from office.
0: Well, it's interesting you should bring that up. I mean, because we've been watching with great interest and uh, I mean, Shep Smith and and, and Chris Wallace are two Fox commentators, of course, who have been critical of the president when they thought it was warranted. Uh, But you're right, not too many other people on that team seem to want to do that. I guess maybe the bellwether is if if the, I don't know if Hannity's ever going to go over, but if some of the others all of a sudden start to become critical, uh, that's going to send a message.
4: Surely. Um, there was definitely a, a really notable uh, interaction there between Chris Wallace and Stephen Miller, um, President Trump's advisor, where uh, Wallace pushed him on this entire Ukrainian story. And Miller was so shocked that he basically said out loud, you shouldn't be questioning me on this. Um, you should be telling the party line. So there were definitely people with consciences, both in the Republican Party and at Fox News, which a lot of people might shake their head and roll their eyes at. But There are people who oppose this and and understand that a lot of this is dangerous and it undermines our institutions and puts people at risk. So, I I mean, there is a feeling that there is a little bit of a splintering, whether or not that continues or not, is anybody's guess.
0: Well, we're watching with great interest, obviously, because the implications are not just uh, national, they are international. Jared, as always, thank you so much for the time today. It was a pleasure talking with you. Thank you, Bill. Take care. That's Jared Yates Saxton, uh, author of the book, The People Are Going to Rise Like the Waters Upon Your Shore, story of an American Rage. Uh, emails on this, bkelly900chml.com, says, first-hand evidence versus hearsay evidence in this context is irrelevant. If the whistleblower, in the whistleblower content, rather, the investigators need only obtain statements and evidence from those actually referenced by the initial whistleblower to have their first-hand evidence, and that is what is the beginning to occur now. The initial complaint through the initial whistleblower does not get blown off nearly because they are recounting an episode that many other people were party to. That's from Alexis. Thank you so much for the input on that and uh, and to her point uh, that may well be substantiated obviously depending on the information that we get from this not just second whistleblower but if we're to believe the lawyer involved in this uh, there are others that are lined up to start testifying against the Trump administration too. This is a uh, starting to get rather interesting isn't it?